welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. I remember the moment when Joe and I found out we were pregnant. And on a little side note there, guys, uh, my unscientific study has revealed that uh, it, most ladies are okay if you say that we were pregnant, but apparently the line is when you say we went through labor. That's that's apparently too far. So that will, you know, a little bit of advice there to, to save you some uh, some scowls, I guess, and, and maybe even a black eye. But, but anyways... I digress now. So when when we were pregnant, we first found out we were pregnant. I still remember finding that out and and the excitement about, you know, being a father, which was quickly replaced with the terror of being a father. And then then later on finding out that we were going to have a girl. And and that was even more terrifying. Not that I didn't want a girl at all. It, it was that I, I figured with a boy, and I, I know what to do with a boy. You just throw him around and wrestle with him. But but a girl, what what do you do? And I I, I had no idea. And so I just feeling that overwhelming sense of terror. And, and, and so I remember asking as many people as I could who, who have been a parents and, you know, parented with an understanding of the new covenant, what does it mean to parent with, with the understanding grace? How do I, how do I be that, that father that I, I want to, I want to be? And if I'm honest, I didn't get many answers that satisfied me. And, and I think it's not because of the counsel they're giving me, but rather really what I was looking for. You see, I was, I was trying to find the magic formula. I was trying to find that secret sauce that would guarantee that I would raise my kids perfectly, that I'd be the perfect dad, we'd have the perfect kids, and they'd grow up without flesh and have no struggles and no issues and, and no problems. And, and that would be it. That's, that's what I was looking for. And, and I say that, and I hear that, and I think how ridiculous that sounds, that, that somehow my children would not struggle with life when we're all born with a struggle. We're born, you know, with the flesh and, and dwelling sin and so forth. But that's what I was looking for anyways. That's what I was, I was searching for. Well, again, like I said, I was asking everyone I could until I asked my friend Carl. And, and when I asked Carl, my search had ended. Um, and I, I remember Hannah was now just a couple months old and, and Carl was up. And again, I asked the same question, you know, what does it mean to parent under grace? And Carl began, he said, well, pray this prayer if you dare pray it. When I heard that, I, I just said, a, oh dear. Everything kind of stopped in my world. And now I'm, now I'm listening to Carl. And he, he said, pray that, that God would allow just enough trials and suffering and difficulty in their life that they would come to discover what life and power in Jesus really is. Well, when I when I heard that, my search was done. I I knew that I had I had found what I was looking for, because it's it's in those difficulties, in those trials, that our faith grows to be strong. Our faith in Jesus becomes real, and that's what I was looking for. More than more than not having issues, more than not having struggles. I want my kids to come to discover life in Jesus. And so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't need to ask those questions anymore because I, I found what I was looking for, which was the goal. You see, last week we, we started with looking at some of the pitfalls in parenting, but we ended with what is our goal as parents? And, and we said our goal is not trying to raise godly children because we can't. We can't guarantee the outcome any more than God can guarantee the outcome with you and I. 
right? That that children have free choice, just like we have free choice. And so you could be the perfect parent, but that doesn't guarantee a particular outcome. So our goal is not raising godly children. Instead, our goal is to be a godly parent, to teach them and to model them to them what life looks like in Jesus. And so this is the goal we came up with, right? It's teaching and modeling to our children what it means to know Jesus Christ and trust Jesus Christ, first as their Lord and then as their Savior, to be that functional source of life, that he's providing to them that strength and that power that they need. And, and we compared, you know, parenting then to kind of like flying a plane, where, you know, that pilot, he goes and he he. he files his uh, flight plan and he's going to make this turn and do here and go there and, and lays out everything from, from takeoff to landing. And yet he's off course 90% of the time because the winds or the storms or the turbulence constantly blow the plane off course. And so they're always making little course corrections, trying to come back to where they need to get to. And eventually they get to their destination, but they've been off course 90% of the time. And that's a great description of parenting, that the, the struggles, the trials, the difficulties, maybe it's with your kids, maybe it's your own issues, maybe it's things like the what's happening in our world, all those things blow us off course constantly, so we're off course 90% of the time, but we're constantly making those course corrections back to our destination, that destination being to raise these kids in a way that they've seen and they've tasted and they've experienced through us what it means to trust Jesus. And hopefully they will they will take us up or take that invitation up. And so this morning, what we want to do is we want to kind of expand more about what that means and what that looks like. So let's read our passage this morning. And it's going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're talking about parents and fathers and and we're going to come to you now and ask you to be a father to us, that you would be the teacher. You would be the one to help us understand how we as parents can influence our kids, how we as parents can, can bless our kids and love our kids. And, and so I'm excited for what you have in store for us this morning. And, and would you encourage us, encourage us in, in this role as being parents, because it is a difficult spot to be in. It is a, it's not an easy job. It's not an easy task. But So we're trusting you, Lord, to speak through me this morning. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so the verse begins with fathers, addressing fathers in particular. And I, I think that we can understand it, that it's not only fathers that, that Paul's speaking to. He's, he's uh, addressing this to both parents, to mothers and fathers. But I do find it interesting that he highlighted fathers when he mentioned parents earlier on in the passage. And, and I wonder if it's partly because that fathers are more guilty at being the ones to provoke their children to anger. And so that might be possibly why he addressed that one. But I think it also highlights the significant role that fathers play in the life of their children. And, and this is borne out in, in life. And, and we see this. And there's, there's so many statistics out there that have kind of shown this. And I just want to share some of you, share some of these statistics with you. Um, and, and they're coming from America. And so they might be a little bit different for us here in Canada. But I think they're, they are um, indicative, though, of the, of the trend. And so the statistics here, in, uh, uh, based on 2020, so not that long ago, uh, one in four children live in a home without a biological step or adoptive father in their home. And that's one in four. That's over 18 million children right now are in a home where there is no male figure. 
No, no stepfather, no adoptive father or biological father. And, and it has a huge impact on how that child grows up. Uh, the stats say there's four times greater chance of being uh, a risk of growing up in poverty, seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teen, more likely to have behavioral problems, more likely to face abuse and neglect, two times more likely for there to be uh, a risk of infant mortality, uh, more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, more likely to go to prison, two times more likely to suffer from obesity, more likely to commit crime, and two times more likely to drop out of high school. Now, please understand, not all statistics, you know, the, the old saying goes, correlation does not equal causation. And so just because you see a stat doesn't mean that it's guaranteed to be that outcome. However, when you start to see enough of these stats over and over again, it starts to lend some credibility here, some credence to this. And, and so it becomes clear. Parents matter. Fathers matter. Mothers matter. And, and I always think if, if there was one social problem that I can fix in our world, aside that making everyone come to, to trust Jesus, if, if I can fix one social problem, it would be that lack of fathers. Lack of fathers within the home, because it's so important that a child grows up in a home with both a mother and a father. And, and it's no guarantee that everything's going to turn out great just because they're there, but the statistics would show us that having both a mother and a father sets the table for the best chance of success. And so I think that's why the Apostle Paul now, he's giving us this counsel as, as parents, how are we to treat our kids? And he's got a negative side to it and then a positive side to it. So let's start with the negative one first, where it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. So here's some different ways that we might provoke our children to anger. Number one, we can provoke our children to anger with a critical approach where we're, we're constantly pointing out their failures and how they're not good enough and, and how they need to do more and do better. And, and that begins to break down their spirit. You know, sometimes parents do this as a joke, fathers in particular, but it, it really is, uh, you know, devastating as I hear the stories of people as they grow up. But, you know, child comes home with an 85 on a test and, and the first thing out of the parent's mouth is, well, what happened to the other 15%? Now, again, sometimes parents say that as a joke and it's evident as a joke and it's harmless. But then there are other times where the parent's actually serious, that that, that 85 wasn't enough and you need to do better. And, and that constant, you know, thinking that if I push them, they'll get better. But it, what it's doing is it's breaking their spirit. It's, it's, it's wearing them down more because they just don't feel like they're ever good enough. They're ever doing enough. Or we might provoke our children to, uh, with our own anger, you know, with our words, the tone of our language, our body language. Uh, again, I mean, think about it. As an adult, you're so much larger than this little child. And so there's so much intimidation coming from that. And then as fathers in particular, with that the tone and that that sometimes that, that look on our face can be very destructive, even maybe more destructive than the physical abuse. Now, again, physical abuse is, is horrible, but the problem with the, the verbal or emotional abuse that comes is that's the stuff that haunts kids when they become adults. That's, a, that's the voice they hear in their head when they're 40 and 50 and 60 and 70 years old. Long after their, their parents are gone, they're still haunted with those words. You know, the name calling and the, you're so stupid and you're such a mess and you're such a screw up and so forth. And, and that can be just devastating to these children as they grow up. We can provoke our children to anger when, when we make it all about us. And therefore, we make it all about our own shame. 
You see, the, the, the worst thing I think that parents can do is, is when they start to blame their children because they, they're looking at their kids and it's, the kids aren't measuring up to what they want them to be, and, and therefore they're not happy. That they're essentially looking to that child to fill in the gap. They're looking at that child to somehow be the answer to their problems, and they can't. They're never meant to be that. See, the child can't fill the gap of that emptiness and that shame in our own souls. And so when we make it all about us, we do it at the detriment of our own children. All right, the next one, we, we provoke our children when, when we are lacking integrity. When, when we, we make it all about do as I say, not as I do. And this happens often because we haven't dealt with our own struggles. We haven't dealt with our own issues. And so what ends up happening is we start living a life where we've given up struggling against sin, where we don't care about you know, our anger and, and we don't care about maybe some of the things, how we treat our spouse and how we treat other people and, and so forth. And so they're seeing that. Or, or maybe we're not acting with integrity when it comes to paying our taxes or talking about people. And, and then we, we demand that our kids do the opposite. And they see that, they, they recognize that, and, and they, we, we breaks down the trust now. You see, children, they see our inauthenticity and, and it turns them off. More than, more, maybe more than anything, right? Where we, we talk about the need to, to trust God, but then all we do is we just, we pray before a meal and show up to church on Sundays and that's it. That, that God really doesn't play a large part in our life, and yet we expect and demand that of our children. And so that inauthenticity ends up destroying the trust, which will destroy the relationship. Because you see, it doesn't matter how much I love my kids, they're only gonna receive that love to the degree to which they trust us, they trust me. And, and that works with God. I mean, God loves the world. God, God perfectly, entirely loves the world, but the whole world doesn't trust God. And so the unbeliever has no trust with God and therefore can't receive any love from God. And then we as believers, we have a little trust with God. And it's a growing trust, but it's still limited, which means that God's infinite love can only be received in a limited way. So, so I often like to think of it this way. You know, think about a sail on a sailboat, right? If I have a small sail, it's going to capture a small amount of the wind. But if I have a big sail, then it's going to capture a lot of the wind. And that's, that's sort of how it works, works with trust, is that, you know, the moment you got saved, you put the sail up, but it's a small sail. And so you have this enormous wind blowing, but it's just capturing a small little bit of it. But as we grow in our trust, as we grow in our faith in Jesus, that sail starts to get larger and larger and larger, thereby capturing more and more of the wind. The wind doesn't grow in power and size. The love of God doesn't grow in power and size. Our trust in that love, however, does. And so it's really important then as parents that we, we do everything we can to earn that trust, to build that trust in them so that they're able to receive that love that we're trying to, to pour out on top of them. And so here's what we can do, right? If it's not provoking to anger, what we can do is we can build that relationship, build up that trust through spending time by, by asking questions about their life and, and showing interest in what interests them, not just what interests us. You know, I, I, again, in the counseling, I, I talk to all kinds of people and ask them about their parents, their mom and their dad, and, and what kind of things did you do with your parents? And more often than not, the child does things that, that the parent is interested in, less so than, than the child is. 
And, and so we, we spend time with them doing things that are interested in them. We take their problems seriously, even their little problems. By taking them, those problems seriously, we're taking them seriously. And in doing so, we're earning that trust, which allows us now the ability to share with them the wisdom that we've earned. And they're, they're going to have a greater chance of hearing it now. You know, in, in counseling, we often say it this way. Nobody cares how much you know until they know you care. And that's true of any relationships, but it's especially true when it comes to parenting. That that child of mine needs to know that I care. Now that they know that, now they're interested to hear what I want to share with them. All right? So again, Ephesians 6 verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but here's the positive now. Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, let's break that down a little bit. The word bring up there literally is to nurture, to care for. We, we saw it earlier in, in, in Ephesians chapter 5 when it talked about how, you know, we're to nurture uh, the, the church, or Jesus is nurturing the church, and as husbands, we're to nurture our wives. And, and I often think of the, the gardener in the greenhouse, right, how they're providing all the, the right ingredients and elements to allow that growth to take place. They can't guarantee it, they can't cause it, but they can control the environment that will be most agreeable or, or provide the greatest chance of, of, the, of success for growth. And that's what we're going to be doing as parents. We're providing the greatest environment that those children will grow up in a healthy way. And to do that, Paul says, to, to do that through instruction. We do that through teaching and sharing this wisdom that is in and from the Lord. And what's interesting there, it says to me, is that parents are primarily teachers. In fact, we are the primary teachers in the, in the lives of our children. Not the schools, not the church, and most certainly not our culture. It's parents that are to be that, to be that, have that role and, and play that part. But what I, what I see happening too often, our parents have walked away from that role. That they've abdicated that responsibility and they're looking to others now. And, and that's what happens, right? Because nature abhors a vacuum. And so when parents step back, someone or something else steps in. And, and that might be, again, the, the, the world, it might be the schools, it might be uh, government, all kinds of different institutions step in to fill that gap. But what ends up happening is they, they're going to not hear a wisdom that is from God. They're going to hear a wisdom that ultimately steals, kills, and destroys from the small g God of this world. Let me give you an example. Sex education. I'm a huge uh, proponent that children, you need to talk to your children about sex. And there's not the talk. You don't have a talk with the kids. You, you talk to your kids about sex. Now, at what age do you begin to start talking to your kids? Now. Right now. Now's, now's the age. They're ready to. Because it, it's not one talk, it's a lifelong discussion where we're talking to them about sex and their bodies and puberty and, and so forth and how it's changing. And it's always at age-appropriate levels. And so, you know, what you say to a three-year-old, to a five-year-old, to a seven, nine, 15, 16, 18, 20-year-old, it's going to change, it's going to grow, but we're having multiple discussions with that. That's the job of parents, not the job of the schools. But what's happened is too many parents haven't wanted to do that. I remember a couple years ago when the great debate was going on about sex education in schools, parents calling in and saying, I don't want to talk to my kids about sex. I want the schools to do that. Uh, you're, you're, you're the parent, though. That's your job to do that. But they've abdicated. They're outsourcing it. And what ends up happening now is, is the world steps in to fill that gap. 
and sadly, what ends up happening is it's the world is influencing our kids more than we as parents. And that's our job is to influence them with what we're sharing with them. And so I often get calls from people asking if, I, if I'd counsel their children, their 8, 9, 10, 12-year-old child. And, and my answer to them really is, I don't, I don't know how much I can help your child, but I can certainly help you. You see, the reality is if I meet with that child, I'll meet with them for an hour or so a week, but you're going to meet with them throughout the day, throughout the, whole, throughout the week, all the time. And you're going to have a greater impact than I will. And chances are, the reason your child is struggling is because something's going on with you. Now, that's not always the case because there are behavioral issues that are beyond the parent. But often, the, the, the most common issues could probably be better, better addressed through the parent. And so we want to help that parent deal with them. And, and here why it's so critical again, because we're not only teaching our children about life and dealing with those problems, but we're actually now teaching them how to be a parent themselves. So that when they reach that age, when they're having their own kids, they've seen it modeled. But what I again see happening, you know, generation after generation is parents taking one step back, another step back, another step back. And, and now we're going to reach a generation where we just don't know what to do with these kids. We've got them. And now we're just going to hand them over to society and say, you raise them. And, and we'll put them in daycare from six weeks old. And, and, and you look after them. And you teach them. And you shape their minds. And you form them. And again, it's going to be a wisdom of this world, not a wisdom of God. So it's important for us as parents to take on that role, take on that responsibility. Now, what a lot of parents do is they think, well, that's good. Now, now we, well, we're going to take in that responsibility. We're going to lay down the rules. So let's, let's talk about rules for a little bit. Little children, they need those rules. Those rules can be really helpful for them, right? Rules such around, you know, what time they go to bed and, and brushing their teeth and, and not playing in the middle of a, of a busy street and, and don't run with scissors and never wear socks with sandals. Don't, don't ever do that. And, and wait for an hour after you eat before you go swimming. I don't know if that one's true, but that's what I was taught, right? So, so anyways, it's important for little kids to have those rules because for number one, Little children, they do not have the ability to think rationally nor critically. And, and that's, that's just because they're still developing, right? The, the human brain, you know, for, I think for ladies, it's developed at age 18, it's fully developed. And for guys, go figure, a little bit longer, 21, right? And, and that's a, it's a bit of a scary thought when you think about the power that a 19-year-old undeveloped brain has for, or, for a guy or the choices you can make. But nonetheless they're still developing as they're growing up. And so again, when they're really, really little, those rules are helpful because they can't think through their life and, and, their, and their, their consequences. But the other thing for little kids is those rules provide stability. And that stability provides security, right? Children thrive in environments of predictability. It doesn't mean you can't be spontaneous and say, hey, let's, let's go to the park today or, or hey, we're going to go to the, off to the beach right now and, and, and do something off the wall. That's fun and that's exciting and that can be a part of it. But they need to know where you stand as a parent. And, and having those safe boundaries is very helpful for them growing up. In fact, I, I, again, through counseling people, I know I've, I've talked to many people who grew up and their parents had no rules. Parents were more interested in just trying to be their friend and, and they didn't care, you know, curfew or what time they came home and who were they with and so forth. And, and at the time, they thought it was great and their friends really thought it was great. 
But then they look back on it and they say, you know, I wish, I wish my dad said something to me when I stumbled in at three o'clock drunk. Or I, I wish my mom said something to me when I was hanging out with that boy. And they, they wish that their parents were able to offer them a little bit more, um, more insight and so forth, right? So that's important to start off when they're a little kid with rules. But as that child grows up, you need to do more than just offer them rules. See, what ends up happening is all they have are rules and, and that's what they're using with. Eventually, they're going to come across a situation where they don't have a rule for it and they don't know how to handle it. They don't know what to do with it anymore. And, and so they've, they've been so dependent upon these rules, but that they're still little children in many ways. But they're little children in adult bodies with adult power and adult responsibilities and consequences. And therefore, they're going to invite adult-sized trouble because they won't know what to do with it. And so what we're wanting to do as parents is we want to teach them how to think through and making decisions. And ultimately, I think that comes down to building and instilling character within that person. And, and so I think of it this way. The rules is going to focus on the, on the behavior, the outward side of things. But character is developing on the identity side, the internal part of who that person is, who they want to be, how they want to, to begin to live. And so it's, we're moving ultimately to helping them to, to rationally think through things, through various guidelines or various understanding of what's healthy and what's unhealthy, what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's not good. And how do I make those decisions ultimately in trusting Jesus? So what I want to do now is I want to kind of share with you um, a little bit of what it looks like within the Gilbert household. Now, let, let, me, let me be clear here. What we're going through we're going through this right now. What I'm sharing with you is, is not from an ivory tower. It's not some theory that I've, you know, we've cooked up and, and we on paper, it looks really, really great. Nor is it, you know, we're, we're so far from parenting that we're only looking back on all the good times with nostalgia and we've forgotten about how hard it is and what the pitfalls look like. No, no, Joy and I, we are right in the middle of it. We are, we've got, you know, this week we're gonna have, you know, three teenagers in the house, and we got two more on deck ready to, to join the ranks. We understand the day-to-day -day grind, the, the trying to impart wisdom and counsel in people who are up and down and, and still growing and maturing. We understand how hard it is and, and them trying to, to be a little child to figure out what those important questions are and, and what some of those answers might be. So we get it right in the middle of it. And so I want to share with you then from our experience what it looks like. But let me be clear, what I'm, and I'm offering to you is not the how-to. This is not, now you take this and you go do this in your house. That's not what I'm saying to you. Because every child is different. Every home is different. And, and so you have to create your own culture and your own family and your own household. And so you might hear some things that are really interesting and you might just absolutely steal it. That's what I did. What I'm going to share with you is what I just, I lifted out of other people's homes because I thought it was so great and it looked so good. So I did it. We, we've kind of altered it a little bit. And then there's some other things that you're going to hear and be like, yeah, that's not for me. It's not for us. And then there's some other things you're like, I, I like the idea, but we have a better way of doing it. However you come up with, absolutely go for it because it's, it's got to be unique. But so while the, the, the expression of it's going to be unique, what is going to be the same, what is going to be common, though, is that overall principle <clears throat> of instruction, of, of teaching these children um, to ultimately uh, 
have the opportunity for them to trust Jesus as their, as, their, as their Savior and as their life. And so what we've done is we've kind of built our parenting around some key mantras or, or mottos that, that we use in our home, in our family, with our kids. Now, why we use these mantras, is it mantras or mantras? I, mantras sound, sound better, doesn't it? Mantra, it sounds more you know, fancy. So we'll call them mantras, right? They're, they're easy to remember. That's the first thing. They're, they're clear, they're concise. We've kind of boiled them down, boil it down to a simple phrase, but they, they contain some pretty powerful wisdom in our minds. And, and then it's something to repeat over and over again, to drive it home in their minds. You see, ultimately what I want is I want these mantras burned into the back of their minds, back of their eyeballs, so to speak, so that they are, when in that moment, they're going to hear joy my voice in their heads when that moment is critical. That's right. I want to haunt my kids with my voice with these mantras. And they're all laughing and giggling because they know that's true because that's what we're doing. So here are some of the, the mantras that we use. The first one that we, we use with them is this one I sold for my friend Frank. And it's life is about choices and choices have consequences. So make good choices. That is just a fact of history, Right. Life is filled with all kinds of choices. Do I do I study this course? Do I take this job? Do I marry this person? Do I have these kind of group of friends? Do I watch this TV program? Do I go out here? Do I stay in there? All kinds of choices. And the result is of those choices is going to be a consequence. And sometimes it's a good consequence, sometimes it's a bad consequence. And so we want our children to to learn to think through those consequences. And, and part of that is because, they, again, the studies have shown that, that children who grow up having that ability to think through things are, tend to be far more successful in life. For example, there was a famous uh, sociology experiment called the marshmallow test. What they did is they took a lot of little kids, four or five-year-old kids, and they, they one at a time put them in a room, and they put one marshmallow down in front of them. And they said, you can eat the marshmallow right now, and it's all yours. But if you wait... 15 minutes or 20 minutes, if you wait some time, we'll give you three marshmallows. Your choice. Well, some kids sat down and they're like, you can have one marshmallow, <clears throat> gone. Couldn't even wait. They just saw it and ate it. And then there were others that waited. And they waited and they waited and waited. And sure enough, they got to the end and then they ate all the marshmallows they got there. And that delayed gratification provided a, a greater and larger reward. And what's interesting is they followed up those same kids many years later. And those kids that, that showed that greater, that delayed gratification sense were far more successful in life. They're far more willing to wait and enjoy the fruits of that waiting rather than just rush into it. So here's an example. I, I've told my kids about, you know, there is a pathway to avoiding poverty. Again, it's, it's, Tried and tested. And if you follow this path, you have a 98% chance of not living below the poverty line. And it's, it's, the pathway is this. Number one, finish school. It doesn't have to be university. It doesn't have to be college. It's just finish high school. So get some kind of diploma. Number two, get a full-time job. It doesn't have to be the highest paying job or the, you know, the, on the track to becoming you know, a, a lawyer or a doctor or, or anything else. It, it's, it's get a job, a full-time job. And then if you want to, get married. And then if you want to, have children. But the key is, do it in that order. Finish school, then get a job, and then if you want to, get married, and then if you want to have, have kids. But in that order. Now, why is that important? 
Well, often what happens is it gets done out of order. That while they're still in school, they get pregnant. And then they, you know, maybe marry that person, maybe not. And now they got to drop out of school to, to look after that child. And, and they may or may not be able to get a job. And if they can't, then they're on welfare now. And they get stuck into that cycle and they can't get out of it. And it, what happened there is it all started with not thinking through the consequences of their choices. They weren't willing to wait. And so having that ability for delayed gratification will lead to you enjoying all kinds of rewards, but also avoiding all kinds of impulsive decisions. I mean, let's be honest, as parents, think about some of the things that, that we regret. And those are the things that we just impulsively acted on. We didn't wait for what the greater reward was, but we wish we did. And that's what we want our kids to learn. And so we get to, to teach our kids, A, by, by sharing our own mistakes, right? We talked about that last time, to, to be willing to be open and sharing our, our, our mistakes so they can learn from our mistakes. The idea that if I tell them my screw-ups, then they're going to feel justified in doing their screw-ups doesn't actually hold. They're just going to go and do them and then learn the hard way like we did. Instead, they can learn from those mistakes. But again, we're teaching our kids. So when they've made a bad choice, we kind of refra re remind them of that mantra to remind them of it. But we also do it when they make a good choice because there are good consequences to good choices. Again, it's getting them to think through making those good choices. Now, please understand that their brain is still developing, right? So, you know, when we said it to our five-year-olds, when they were, our children were five, they weren't understanding it. All they were doing was just, we're like installing a hook in their brain where we're hanging this mantra up. But now that they're older, they're beginning to understand it and apply it. And that's going to um, help them make those choices and ultimately be more successful in life. And, and what was interesting about that study about the, uh, the, the pathway to avoiding poverty, they, they, they summarized this way, personal decisions trump anything the government can do. There's no government program that will avoid poverty to the same degree that better choices can make. And so that's what we're trying to instill within our, ch our children, not just to avoid poverty, but to avoid all kinds of hurt and struggles and regret. So life's about choices and choices have consequences. So make good choices. All right. The, the next mantra that we've, we've used to teach our children is this one. It's we're always on their side. In, in essence, what we're trying to say is you're always loved, but but we like that we're always on your side or, or mommy and daddy are always on your side because it was it was more meaningful. It had, it had more, more depth to it than just that we love you. And, and obviously we say both, but, but the, we want them to know that we're cheering for them, that we're supporting them, that everything we're doing as best we can, we believe is in their best interest. And, and they may not always feel that. They may not always see that that way, but we're, because we're on their side, because we're cheering for them, that's what's driving our decision-making. And, and hopefully that they're going to remember that and therefore have a greater chance of, of trusting us and therefore, you know, receiving our love. Now, again, it's important that our actions are consistent with what we're telling them. If, if we're telling them we're on their side, but all of our actions are, our actions are selfish and, and just about our own comfort and our own pleasure, then they're going to pick up on that and they're going to quickly discover that we don't love, that we're not on their side and they're just empty words. So again, it's important that our, our own actions match what we're saying to them. All right, the, the next mantra that we use in our home is, is for this, I have Jesus. 
Or another derivation of that is everything is better with Jesus. And, and you see, what we're trying to teach our kids is we're not meant to handle life on our own. We're not meant to go through these struggles by ourselves. But we're never alone now as followers of Jesus. That, that now what Jesus has done is he's come to take up residence within us. And so there's no obstacle, there's no mountain, there's no problem that is too great for him. That, that while I may feel overwhelmed, that I may feel like I'm inadequate and I can't handle this, Christ in me is not. Christ in me is more than capable. And so that's what Philippians 4.13 is talking about. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's what we want to teach our kids, that no matter what you're facing, for this situation, for this struggle, we have Jesus. And in doing so, I'm hoping that they're going to learn resilience, that they're going to learn that perseverance in any situation. Not because that they're strong in themselves, but that, that they're not a victim to it because Christ is greater than the problem, that he is able to handle it. And, and so that's what we're trying to teach our children this way. For this, I have Jesus. My, my friend, he, he used a slight derivation on this. He said, trust Jesus and kick butt. That was their, their family motto. And it's the same idea, right? For this moment, I'm gonna trust Jesus in me and through me. And they're learning that. They're learning that as I'm learning that in life. We're always learning that with every situation and every struggle we go through. All right, the, the next mantra we use in our home is that Jesus can fix anything. I, I, I love this one because I, I heard the story. It was, uh, it was many, many years ago, uh, back when uh, Jimmy Swaggart, if you remember that TV evangelist, Jimmy Swaggart, uh, if you don't ask normal, remember, and Peter too, and Marco, they'll remember Jimmy Swaggart because they're more holy than the rest of us. That's not, not because they're older. No, no. Anyways, I digress. So I interrupted my thought there. My bad. Uh, anyway, so, so Jimmy Swaggart, he, uh, he just got caught up in, in some sin and he was sleeping around with prostitutes and so forth. And, um, and this was on the heels of, of Jimmy and, T and uh, Tammy Baker and, uh, and all kinds of issues with these t TV evangelists. And uh, my friend was at a pastor's conference and they're asking him, what do, what do, you know, what's going on here? What, what should we do with him and so forth? And, uh, and this one man, Josh McDowell, shared the story about how that was going around the schoolyard. And then all the kids were asking, talking about it. And, and the kids were all like, we should throw them out, get rid of them, never, never trust them again and so forth. And just, you know, feed them to the wolves. He deserves what he's got because he's made these bad choices. Now he's got to lie in it and so forth. And, um, and so Josh McDowell asked his daughter, he goes, well, what do you think? She goes, I, I don't know. What do you think, dad? And he says, well, I think we need to show him grace. I think we need to love him. Now, it doesn't mean we turn a blind eye to it or anything like that, but I think we need to make sure that we love this person. And he said, the reason I told her that was because I want her to remember that later on for after she screws up, that, that she won't be afraid to come to me, that she won't come to me going, I just got pregnant and I, I'm you know, 17 pregnant. Dad's going to throw me out because I've, I've screwed up. And, and they're so afraid of that, but they're going to instead know that, that Jesus can fix anything, that Jesus can even fix this moment, that Jesus is the king of redemption, that if he can redeem Calvary, then he can redeem my sin. He can redeem this problem and use it to my advantage. Jesus can fix anything. And so I, I want my kids to know that so they don't hide from me. They don't, they don't 
you know, take their struggles and pretend that everything's fine, know that they can come to me with their struggles and they'll know that it's okay, that I'm going to love them. Again, mama and daddy are always on their side. Jesus is always on their side. And Jesus can fix this. For this problem even, we've got Jesus. And then the last one that we've got is this one. You know, we call it the 11th commandment. Again, we stole this from my friend Frank. Thou shalt not take yourself too seriously. This is a gift. We, it's such a, a great reminder that, that because we've been given a shame-free identity, because we are completely loved, because we are completely accepted and approved, there's nothing left for us to prove. There's not, nothing I have to, to try to earn or achieve. I'm not going to become more loved and more acceptable if, if I have it all together. And so it means that I can laugh at myself. I can make mistakes. I can, I can screw up. And it's okay because of who I am in Jesus. And I'm, I'm still learning about that and I'm still growing and I'm still discovering things, but I can be comfortable in my own skin. I can be comfortable with me. With all my perceived flaws and shortcomings and screw-ups and so forth, it's okay. And so we're trying to teach our kids, we don't need to take ourselves too seriously. Laugh at yourself. Don't get so easily offended um, because that, that thin skin ultimately is going to wear you down because it really doesn't necessarily matter what others think of me. All that matters is what does my father think of me? And that's what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 4. It's a small thing, he says, a small thing to have your approval of me, right, for what you think of me. In fact, I don't even care what I think of me. Ultimately, it comes down to what God thinks of me. And not that I'm innocent, not that I'm perfect, but I know my father loves me. And so it's a small thing to judge by you. And that was that freedom that allowed him to just live in the, the life and the freedom of Jesus Christ, not taking himself too seriously. Absolutely beautiful. All right, the last thing now I want to kind of close with is, is a word on, on discipline, right? So how do we discipline our kids? Um, first off, we, understand, we have to understand discipline is not the same as punishment, it may look the same at times. It may even feel the same at times, but they are two very different motives. Punishment is, I want you to suffer. I want you to hurt. That's what punishment is. Discipline, however, is all about learning. It's all about growing. It's all about how do we, how do we mature from this? And, and our failures are a great opportunity, a great position or spot for us to learn from our failures. As one movie puts it, why do we fall? So we can learn how to get back up. And, and so those failures aren't bad. They're, they're chances for us to grow in them. And so God disciplines you and I because he loves us. That's what Hebrews 12 says. And in the same way, we're gonna discipline our children because we love them. Again, not punish them, but discipline, help them learn, help them grow. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? Because it's not talking about you got to beat them and how you beat them and, you know, you have to use a stick or a rod or anything like that. That's not what discipline's about. It's how do I teach them? So, again, one of the, the people I was asking before, before Hannah was born, I, I specifically asked my friend about how do I discipline? What does that mean? What does that look like? And he, he took me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And, and, and this is not going to be a perfect exegesis of this passage, but I think he laid it out in a way that made a lot of sense to me in terms of what that discipline looks like. So in 2 Timothy 3, 
In verse, beginning in verse 15 and 16, it says this, that from childhood, you have known the sacred writings which were able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture, goes on to say, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, um, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So there are those four things in there. There's the teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And that sort of, he kind of laid out for me, was sort of like, uh, there's a there's a bit of a, a path or a bit of a way in which we discipline our kids. Number one, it starts with the teaching. We're teaching these kids, you know, what do good decisions look like? You know, what does it mean to, um, you know, what are the rules or, or what are the guidelines? Because if I don't teach that to them, then they're not going to be able to, to know it. How, how, how can I hold them accountable to that? And so if I haven't showed it to them and taught it to them, then I, I can't come back to them on it. All right, so it starts with number one, teaching. And then number two is, is the reproof, where they haven't followed these rules or these guidelines, or they've made these bad choices, and now I need to give them a consequence. All right, that's why it's so important as parents to give these consequences because I need for them to learn that life is about choices and choices have consequences. So make good choices. So if, I, if they make a bad choice and I don't provide that consequence for them, then they ultimately are learning that there are no consequences to my choices. And it doesn't matter what I choose, so I can just do whatever I want in the moment. No sense of learning to delay gratification or, or making good choices now. So I want to make sure that there are those consequences for them. So they can learn to make better choices the next time they're faced with that. So that's the reproof is so important. And then there's the correction. What can they do next time? What would be a better choice? Instead of, you know, scratching and biting your sister, what could you have done differently? Instead of, you know, throwing the ball in your friend's eye, what could you have done differently? Instead of kicking them in the shins because you didn't get your way, what could you have done differently, right? So learning to make better choices the next time they have that opportunity. And then finally, the fourth one, and this is really, really important, the sense of, of, of learning righteousness. And what that means is that they're, they're being reminded that they're loved and they're accepted, that they're safe and they're, they're, they belong in the family. And yes, they made a mistake, but they haven't lost their love. They haven't lost their spot in this. And this one's really critical and important because, you know, if you only do the first three, they're good. But what could happen is they walk away, head hanging low with the voice of the enemy just shaming them. You've disappointed your dad. Mom's frustrated again. You see, you're, you're such a screw-up. No one loves you. You're, you know, all these negative self-talk coming from the flesh, coming from our enemy. And so as parents, we can be there to remind them that they're loved, that they're accepted, that none of, that, none of that's changed. Despite making a bad choice, they are welcome and loved in this family. And, and that can allow them to experience freedom now. So that's that's how it looks like in the Gilbert's household. And and again, it's going to look differently than, than in your home, but maybe you can take some things that will make sense for you guys and add some things, whatever works for you and your family with your unique situation. But that's sort of what, what we're trying to approach in our home. Do we do it perfectly? No, no. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a lit... No, I'm not... No, we're... We're not even close to perfect. We're not even the same area code, same region as being perfect, not even close. But the good news is, is Jesus is always on our side. And, and for this, this issue, parenting, we've got Jesus. He's here. 
and he can fix anything, even our screw-ups as parents. He will use that to the benefit of our children. And, and so while we, we can't guarantee that our kids are going to grow up and trust in Jesus, what we can do is provide for them the best environment for that to take place, for that to happen, where hopefully that they will, they will walk with God in more intimate and deeper ways than Joy and I even do today. That's my prayer for my kids, that they will trust Jesus in greater ways. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're, we're thankful for you. We're thankful that we've got you for parenting because it it's hard. It's, it's unrelenting. It's day-to-day grind, but we've got you and we can trust you. And, and in our, our weakness, we discover a strength in you that we didn't even know was possible. And, and it's challenging because every child is different. Every moment's a little bit different, but we can talk to you and trust you. And I pray in doing that, we will model to our children what a life of faith looks like and that they will find it attractive enough. Being people of integrity, being people of, of, uh, that are loving and caring, that they will want what we've discovered in you and that they would make that great choice to trust you first as their savior, but then learn to trust you in life as well. And, and continue to grow us up, continue to teach us to do that, Father. In your name we pray. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.